uh, I, I feel like I'm a bunch of friends here, but I, I have already been uh, overwhelmed by something. Um, uh, my father was in the service, and so we lived in a lot of different places. <clears throat> and as a child, I would always come back here in the summers to be with my grandparents. And uh, my grandmother, on my maternal side, would take me to Colonial Hills Baptist Church, where Howard was. And at that church, I was like 10 years old. I remember uh, every time, am I right about this hour? Every time the church met, we sang, and can it be? Am I right? Every time. And I literally was overwhelmed a few minutes ago to think that for 45 years, Howard and I have been singing, and can it be together? And that's that's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. That song has always been very important to me, and uh, it was overwhelming. Uh, I just want to thank you. I want to thank Justin and Howard for their friendship, for offering this to me as uh, an opportunity, and it is an opportunity. And so I, I would appreciate if you turn with me to Ephesians chapter uh, 1, actually. I want, to, I want to kind of get a running start at where we're going. So Ephesians chapter 1. And um, <clears throat> just sort of uh, to let you know where we're going, to give you kind of a layout, uh, I want to begin in chapter 1 and really think just quickly with you about that and then head into chapter 2 and sort of slow down as we keep going. The place that we're really going to camp out is in verse 10 of chapter 2. But... <clears throat> at too late in the game, I realized I didn't really like this sermon, to be honest. Because in getting to chapter 10, it's really bearing the lead of chapter 1. And, or excuse me, verse 10 of chapter 2 bears the lead of chapter 1. And, and really, Ephesians 2.10 makes no sense unless you've read up to that point. And, uh, but we're going to do this anyways, okay? So, join me with me in reading uh, chapter 2, verse 8 through 10, and then we'll go into chapter 1. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are all his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. When considering what we were going to give attention to this morning, um, I wanted to focus on a passage that's been particularly helpful for me and a few of my friends. Uh, I do some of the counseling at our church, and uh, my name is on the internet for this, and so I get to meet a lot of interesting people. And about 18 months ago, I, I had this cluster of conversations with about five people, and it seemed like the same conversation over and over. And these, these gentlemen, they were all guys, were about, they were all Christians, they were about age 28 to 36, 38, somewhere in there. They were all employed and going to reasonable churches, and uh, that's just my little corner of the internet, that's who comes to me, so that, those are the guys who, who got in touch with me. They had no life-controlling situations, no drug or alcohol addictions. They didn't have relational-type problems. They weren't facing a divorce or something like that. And um, they all kind of said the same thing, though. And they said it differently, that they didn't feel like their life was hitting on all cylinders, right? That, that, that they had this big-picture, large-level, big-God theology in Christianity, but they would look at their everyday life and there was no congruency between these things. And uh, they expressed it in, in a couple phrases that I would repeat. It's, one of them said, I want to live more purposely than chaotically. Another guy said, uh, I'm good at handling problems and I feel like, you know, uh, that's what I do. I handle problems as they come, but I want to be on offense and not so much on defense. And in my mind, you know, you try to think about these things biblically, it, it sort of sounded like Ecclesiastes to me, you know, that uh, they were trying to search for meaning under the sun and were not finding it. Or uh, they had eternity in their hearts and couldn't find 
what would address that in in light. But Ecclesiastes seems to be written towards unsaved people, to be honest. And my friends had a Christian version, maybe, of this problem. And and I, as I thought about it, I was drawn really to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Let me read those to you. They're on the same page, I'm sure, in your Bible. Verses 18 and 19 of chapter 1 says, this is Paul speaking to the Ephesians, and he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. I think that's what my friends were after, right? I think that's what they thought they were missing. And, And there's a problem because they didn't feel the hope of his calling. They didn't feel the richness of his glory and his inheritance. And they didn't know, like really know and experience the greatness of his power. They, the best description of their life was mundane, right? And, and so uh, they weren't seeing what Paul was praying for us and the Ephesians and, and those guys to have. Now, there's some, there's some answers for this out there, right? Modern life coaches and, and people who have give advice, they would say what these guys need is some outward stability, right? Uh, what they need to do is get married. They, they, as you anchor yourself in relationships, these things tend to take care of themselves, and and therefore, you know, develop your social structure. And um, quite frankly, my friends were not tempted in this way. That did not sound like good advice. Um, and one way or another, they they had experienced broken families. They didn't believe that another person, like a spouse or a child, would naturally bestow meaning or motivation or purpose or identity on them, they actually were slow to commit and suspicious of encumbrances that might, in fact, make the problem worse, right? Secondly, others might give them advice to say, solve these problems the way your fathers did. You know, be productive. Find purpose and motivation and identity in what you produce, get yourself a career, attach yourself to something bigger, join with other people, invest yourself into something bigger than you, contribute so that at the end you can look back and say corporately, we we did something, we made something. Well, my friends desire to be creative and desire to be productive, but that didn't sound very appealing either. They had seen periods of unemployment, enough boom and bust, that they were not only not tempted to find it in any kind of employment, they were not tempted to find answers in the temporary nature of any of that stuff. They, they wouldn't even acknowledge that they would have a singular job or even a singular career path. And so that looked like a dead end to them. Well, there's a third option. If meaning and motivation and, and purpose can't be found outside, maybe it's within, right? Look within yourself. And this is tempting because there's some kind of be true to yourself kind of thinking behind that 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 everybody's talking about, right? I mean, look down deep inside of you, find out who you really are, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, be all you can be, follow your star, set your own course, right? All those high school graduation themes (laughs) that you hear at the speech, right? Well, it doesn't take you long and thinking about those platitudes to know that what you're doing in that case is digging into an empty well and looking for something. Looking inside yourself is not helpful. And Ephesians approaches this totally against those lines of thinking for the Christian. Probably the clearest point Ephesians 1 makes is the most significant thing about a Christian is not found in the creation nor is it found within the creature, it's found within Christ, right? The starting point for who we are, for why we're here, for where we go, for how do we do this, begins with Christ and being in Christ, right? The the Christian knows who she or he is by knowing who she or he is in Christ. And if Paul's 
three and a half, four point prayer, however you want to count, count these things. If that's, if that's going to be answered, if, if the eyes of the heart is going to be enlightened, that they will know the hope of his calling and the riches of the glory of his inheritance and the surpassing greatness of his power towards us, if those things are going to happen, they're going to happen in Christ. And, and Paul's thesis verse for the first half of the book of Ephesians is probably chapter 1, verse 3. And he says there, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's his thesis. And then he goes on to prove his point by listing out these spiritual blessings. And each one of these alone are incredible. Each one of these alone are incredible. And then when he strings them together like this, being extremely comprehensive, they're overwhelming. They're overwhelming. Look what Jesus provides for the saint. In verse 4, our holiness is found in him. In verse 5, our adoption is through Christ. In verse 6, grace comes to us because it's bestowed on us in the beloved. That's a nickname for Jesus. In verse 7, our redemption comes through his blood. Also in verse 7, our forgiveness comes from the same place. In verse 8, the revelation of God's will comes from Christ. In verse 10, world history finds its purpose and terminus in him. I'm a history teacher. I like that idea. Verse 11, our inheritance is in him. And verse 13, the Holy Spirit seals us in him. Which is a wonderful thought. If that's where all the blessings are, what better idea that God would lock us up in Christ, right? Where the blessings are. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. Seals us in him. And so this is strange. And, and I wish I knew more about this or understood it better. But somehow upon our spiritual birth, we were connected to Christ. And, and we have experience and benefits in him. In Romans 6, Paul says that we were put on the cross with him. We died with him. That we were buried with him. That we rose again with him. And, and somehow we got connected to Jesus as he does all these things spiritually. He did it physically. We do it spiritually with him. Right? In, in John chapter 15, John says, we are so connected to Christ that we get our life from him like a vine gives life to branches. Now, older Christians would call this our mystical union with Christ. And the reason they called it mystical is we still got questions. How does this happen, right? But, but what is seen clearly is the union of the believer in Christ. And as you read down through chapter 1, you see how connected we are with Christ Look, look at down in verse 19, okay? Down in verse 19, Paul has been talking about what we have in Christ. And then in the middle of 19, he makes a shift. He was detailing the long list of what God has given us in Christ. And then he starts talking about what the Father has done for Christ. He says, these, which means, he means those benefits he just listed off. I just rolled them off to you. These, these are in accordance with, with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Do you see now God the Father is working with God the Son, not with us, right? He changed there, right? And so uh, when, when he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, verse 21, far above all rule and all authority and all power and all dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Verse 22, and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as a head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills, fulfills all in all. Now, the way he's put this, this is not exactly what he's saying, but it's almost as if 
when the Father exalts the Son and raises Him up and demonstrates how great the Son and how marvelous He is and, and puts Him in a place where everybody will adore Him. And as, as God the Father does that to God the Son, He actually raises us up too. It's, it's almost, it's not exactly saying this, but it's almost as if when the Father acts on the Son, we get some residual benefits from that. Now, I say almost because he didn't lose track of us. The Father's still trying to bless us. It's not like we stowed away in Jesus and he didn't know we were there. But he's focused on the Son. He's focused on the Son. And what he says is, to more greatly enhance the glory of the Son, I will let him be the Savior of the world. I'll put him in a position that magnifies his glory. As he benefits these people, he will be appreciated even more. Now, um, quite frankly, these are enjoyable thoughts for me. I mean, if you, if you, I, I just love this, right? Um, and, and if all this does, if all this does this morning is help you appreciate God the Father and God the Son and their relationship and their love and their desire to glorify one another and our getting swept up in that glory, that's enough. That's enough. If we're looking for the hope of his calling, his glorious inheritance, and the greatness of his power, the purpose behind the mundane, then why would you invest effort in the creation or the creature? It's in Christ. It's in Christ, right? And so we can stop looking at the creation to supply our meaning. We can stop looking within the creature to supply that. And we can look to Christ... For it's in Him that we're going to find the blessings God's given us. It's in Him. And that brings us into chapter 2. And, and this is where, if you're a believer, this is your testimony. Okay? Paul is making a big point, and that big point is everything he just described is coming to you in grace. It's coming to me in grace. Right? And, and to make that point, he wants to tell you how this found you. And so this is your testimony. Listen to verses 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's all encompassing everybody. This is God's perspective on everyone who is without Christ. That's a scary thought. Did you see where Paul said, we all too formally live? That means everybody was once this person in verses 1 through 3, without exception. This either was you or still is you. It certainly was me. Now, I know what you're thinking. Because I know all about your successes. You were a beautiful baby. You were a precocious child. Good with your hands. Advanced for your age. Real people person. Dean's list. You're so sweet. You're a hard worker and a real catch. I get all that. Everybody's always said that about you. Well, we were wrong. We were wrong about you, right? I mean, in comparison to everybody else, you're that. Don't get me wrong. But from where God sits, objectively, that's wrong. The most accurate evaluation of each of us before Christ has always been dead in tr trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's the objective truth. So why is Paul going to throw this ugly truth in the middle of what was a great, beautiful letter? It's to emphasize his big point. 
Verse 4 is where God comes to us, right? But God. That's a great clause right there. But God. He's going to dip into this mess of the first three verses. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace have you been saved, and raises us up with Him and seats us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that at the end of the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's beautiful. If you know yourself to be the hot mess of verses 1 through 3, you are excited to see verse 4 come on, right? 4, and set, four through 7 are really helpful. And, and, and so what this is saying is that God is much more gracious than you were sinful. He, he told Timothy in chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 1, the grace of our Lord is more than abundant. Chapter 1 says you got all the benefits you got for being in Christ. Chapter 2 starts off saying, but, 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 wait a minute, uh-uh. You didn't get them because of who you are. You're a mess. And then verse 4 begins saying, these things came to you because you were in Christ. Right? Because that's how God is. He's rich in mercy, so you got mercy. He is great in love, so you got great love. He's, he's great in grace, so you got grace. He just, he just does that. Right? He loves, and when he loves, it saves. It's the kind of mercy, the kind of grace, the kind of love that locates us in Christ. And in verse 6, it raises us up with Christ into the heavenly places. And verse 7 shows the purpose God has. He, he does this to demonstrate how gracious he is to Christ Jesus. Right? It gives his reason. And at the same time, it's beyond reason, because I still got questions here. I mean, basically he says, God, is grac God graciously saves us in order to demonstrate the depth of his grace. He kindly saves us in order to show the width of his kindness. He lovingly saves us to show the degree of his love. And that's what he does for Christ and for those who are in Christ. You got what you got in grace not because you were who you were, but because Christ was who he was and the Father was who he was. And so when we read verse 8, it's really a summary statement that makes perfect sense. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that it's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. <laughs> of course, by this time, of course it is, right? I mean, think about what did you do in chapter 1? What did I do in chapter 1? As God was giving us our holiness, our adoption, our grace, our redemption, our forgiveness, our revelation, our inheritance, and His Spirit, what were we doing? Nothing. The only person doing anything in chapter 1 is God. Now, you might certainly argue we must have contributed something. Well, you did. I did. We contribute the moral and spiritual death of chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you say, no, that's not what I'm talking about, because I remember when I was saved, and I definitely responded to God. I know I literally trusted God. You're right. All of us who believed, we exercised our faith. And salvation has come to us through faith. Faith is that thing that grabs on to grace. It's the instrument that grabs grace. And so... We had faith. However, verse 8 is clear that even the faith we exercised was given to us as a gift. You didn't have the tool of faith before it was given to you. You couldn't grab the grace with nothing. Neither could I. And, and so God is taking somebody who is dead and giving them life and faith, and that person with his new life takes his new faith and grabs grace. We need the gift of faith to even appreciate the grace, to even respond to the grace. And so doesn't that make verse 9 obvious? I mean, these, these statements are just conclusion statements. It's a gift from God, not as a result of works, so no one can boast. 
right? I mean, what can I say about myself other than I've been the beneficiary of things I didn't earn and I didn't deserve? What else can I say? If we're going to talk about earned or deserved or work, we have to go back to talking about Jesus. Right? He's the only one who's not a part of verses 1 through 3 in chapter 2. He's the only one who had positive righteousness and merit within him. He's the only one. Think about what happened here. The Father lovingly planned salvation. The Son faithfully accomplished the work on the cross that both pleased the Father and satisfied His wrath against the sinner. And then in your lifetime, the Holy Spirit took what Christ had done and applied it to you in your lifetime. So what do we do? We're left saying, thanks be to God for His unspeakable gift. And after thank you is the best we can do, really. And that brings us to verse 10, where Paul gives another statement of purpose. And it shows one aspect of what God is doing in all this. Verse 10 shifts the focus a little bit, but it's going to explain some things. It says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. I want to sit down here for a minute and just really think through the pieces of this with you. On the one hand, when he says, for we are God's workmanship, that again is an obvious statement after everything you've already read. It's obvious. We're, we're his workmanship. We are now what we weren't before, and the only reason we are now what we are is because God has worked on us. That's, I mean, it's obvious, right? How can you disagree with that statement after reading everything up to this point? We are something new that he has made in Christ. And yet, think of how Paul phrases this. He calls us God's workmanship, right? This phrase implies consideration and care. And it makes our salvation much more a work of design, really, than just a statement of process or something like that. Biblically, I flash back to, um, as I was thinking through this, the Garden of Eden, where, where when God creates physically the first time, his creation of Adam and Eve, he dips into the dirt, grabs dirt, and breathes life into it to make Adam. And then later on, down in chapter 2, he reaches into Adam, grabs a rib, and takes that rib and fashions a woman that is suitable for Adam in the situation. Right? That, that's, that's more developed and more hands-on and more caring than what it sounded like in chapter 1 when he said, let there be light. It just seems like more of a hands-on process. Now, I know that's making God anthropology-like man, more anthropological. I know, I know he's trying to say something in the picture he gives there. But as we are his workmanship in chapter 2 of Ephesians at recreation, it, there is something similar to the tone of how he fashioned us at creation. And, and this is purposeful. And, and this purpose, uh, this purposeful picture has a purpose in the passage. It says we were created in Jesus Christ for good works. So he has made something for a purpose, right? And this purpose is good works. Now, Paul has smoothly changed his perspective here, okay? Everything that has said before verse 10 has had to do with eternal statements about us or God that, that has effect about how we stand with God. For example, when he was speaking in chapter 1 of our holiness, our forgiveness, our adoption, all of that, those are things that are equally true about us at all times. Okay, As we sang just a, a few minutes ago, those things have to do with our position and we can't change them. As we said, we can't increase our adoption, we can't decrease our adoption. We're adopted. right? But as he goes into verse 10, he starts to talk about our experiences, good works, our walk, right? And so Paul is transitioning from talking about our justification 
to talking about our sanctification, if we're going to talk about it in theological terms, right? But what this means is, and you see this in passages like Romans 8 and James 1, they not only affirm that God created something new, a person in Christ, when he saved us, but they also describe the process in which he continues to form us and continues to make us over our lifetime. Sanctification, right? Because God didn't just save you and translate you into heaven. For some reason, he saves us, makes us a new person, and leaves us in the same old place. The same context, right? Now, why does he do that? I don't fully understand, but in verse 10, we have a glimpse, right? We have a glimpse. It says when Paul says, when Paul says he does this, he does it for good works. He does it for our walk. But what does that mean? What does it mean, our, our walk or these good works? Well, he could be talking about the law of Moses, perhaps. So, so when he says the walk at the end of chapter 10, or good works, at, or excuse me, at verse 10, or the good works at the beginning of verse 10, he might be just, that might just be code for saying, you know, do what Moses commands you to do. Don't do what Moses forbids you to do. And that might be possible, but it's not a good fit. It really doesn't work here. Previously, there's been no mention of Moses in the law. In verse 11, it goes on to talk about that, but it talks about it negatively. So if he's going to tell you to do it in in verse 10, why would he tell you not to do it in verse 11 without some kind of explanation? It doesn't fit very well, right? And and on top of that, he's he's, he's writing this to people who don't have a Jewish background. So if you want to tell a bunch of Gentiles to obey the law of Moses, you've got to say something more than that, right? I mean, he's being way too subtle. So I don't think it's that. Well, maybe good works means Christian disciplines, right? Prayer, Bible study, evangelism, specific Christian service. These are certainly activities that Paul would give to any, anybody who is a Christian from any racial background, Jew or Gentile. However, I don't think that seems to be. You might say, well, he visits this again in the Armor of God section at the end of the uh, book, but there doesn't seem to be a straight connection. I think there's a better answer. If you keep reading Ephesians, you'll get to the part in chapter 4 where Paul starts talking about the walk again. And and he encourages really wide-ranging and mundane behavior in this area. Okay, He's not talking about Bible study for the most part. And when you read this section, starting about verse 25 of chapter 4, what you get is Paul is in, he's encouraging, speak the truth. Go to work. Edify your speech. Have kindness. Have forgiveness. And then he forbids stuff like lying, anger, stealing, destructive speech, bitterness, slander. That's kind of everyday stuff, right? And then he goes on to regulate different relationships, husband and wives. Parents and children, masters and slaves. And, and so these are everyday practices, particularly at his time, and, and relational dispositions seem to be what makes up good works and the walk of the believer. If that's what he's talking about in verse 210, in chapter, chapter 2, verse 10, and I think it is, the good works and our walk are incredibly basic principles. It's the mundane. But that's exactly where we tend to sin the most, right? So, for example, you're going to work today. Will there be good works coming out of you today? You're going to walk today. What is the character of your walk today? Right? And, And these things are unavoidable. Let's note a couple of encouraging aspects here. Here's one reason I'm encouraged about you. God has been preparing people in Christ for purposes. If you think about it, God is not really seeming to advance his kingdom through a lot of miracles today. But he does have several people doing good work. There's a lot of us doing good work, and therefore his kingdom is crawling forward maybe, but it's advancing, right? This seems to be his methodology. But what way has he created us for good works? I mean, if we're his workmanship, how has he made us for these good works? Well, Paul wrote something similar to this in his letter to Titus. And in Titus 2, verse 14, he says this, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. 
In other words, Jesus gave himself so that we wouldn't sin anymore. Comma, to purify and make us his possession. Comma, a people zealous for good works. Now, I like this description of people zealous for good deeds. One of the, one of the reasons is, whatever these deeds are, you're going to be, you're going to be up for them. You're going to be zealous for them. You're going to, he's making you ready to do the good stuff and even excited, zealous about doing the good stuff. Now, remember, we're talking about sanctification, not perfection. Because I know you may be thinking that's not your, you know, zealous, not your current buy-in level, right? You see yourself more at the shallow end of the pool. I get that. But we're talking about growth. You know, that's okay for now. But keep maturing. Keep growing. And see if your zealousness hasn't increased in three years. Right? Right? Christian growth isn't a sprint, it's a process. And, and if you're God's workmanship, He's going to develop zealousness within you. And you're going to, you're going to be more excited about doing good works. Which is everyday mundane stuff. There's a second piece of encouragement here about you. If God has created you for good works, isn't it logically evident that you'll be able to do the good works? For example, if I train you to do something and then put you on a task, you, you may not have the resources it takes to do the task. I mean, maybe, maybe I didn't understand your skill set. Maybe you don't have a skill set. I don't know, right? Or maybe the project's bigger than I expected. I trained you for it, but you go out there and you fail. However, if you're God's workmanship, He created you for good works. Don't you believe you will have what is necessary as far as resources to do the good works? Do you think the one who is gracious through your justification in chapter 1 is going to have you in a situation that will crash and burn your faith in the sanctification of chapter 2? Is he going to give you a temptation in which you can find no righteous way out of it? Is he going to position you in which there's no option to glorify God? Not if God has prepared you for these good works. Therefore, as God builds his people, he builds them in light of the works they're to do. Now, let's be careful here. I'm not a prosperity preacher. I'm not saying everything you touch is going to turn to gold. I don't believe that. I don't believe the Bible teaches, and it's certainly not my Christian experience, right? I know each of you has been at the end of your rope at some point or another both spiritually and morally. I know your faith has been weak and strained. I know sin has made you want to do some significant do-overs. And yet God has been faithful to you, has he not? I mean, it may have taken everything you've got, but here you are this morning worshiping and praising God. Living by grace. Faith not quite a mustard seed, but still in Christ. As he forms you, he will supply you. What I mean is, you'll always be able to glorify God no matter what situation you're in. You'll always be able to respond righteously no matter what condition you're in. You'll always be in a position to obey God no matter where he has you. It will be in you to do that. There's another encouragement here. It's not really about you, but it's about the works themselves. Listen to what he says about these works. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now here's some pressure for you. He's going to have situations in front of you that he set up. Right? He's going to have you in places that he understands perfectly what you're facing because he prepared them for you. Is is that what he says? Prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. I think that's what it says right here, right? And and so think about it like this. God is working in you to do good works, and then he prepared the good works for you in front of you, and and he's prepared you for the situation. Now you just got to walk through them, right? And, And so 
this is this is more encouragement to be faithful in wherever you are. You know, I, I know there's a hard conversation you have to have with somebody. Right? Have the conversation. God is prepared. God has prepared that. He's prepared you for that. Right? You, you have a relationship that is horrible. You might be sitting next to that person. I don't know. But but um, God has prepared that situation, that relationship. It's your relationship. He didn't make a mistake in putting that person there. He didn't make a mistake in putting you there beside that person. He's prepared you to be the right person and, and, and do good works in that relationship. Now, we know that's not easy. It's certainly easier to say, and there's some temptations. So let's let's talk a minute about some of the temptations of how this can go wrong. Number one, um, God has created you for good works and prepared the good works for you. He's done this whether you buy into it or not. Okay, and often we do not buy into it. We do not. And just for one example, I I do some marriage counseling. You would not believe how many times I have heard the phrase, "We made a mistake when we got married." Right. And, and I'm, I'm totally with you. <laughs> I, I believe when you asked her to marry you, you had no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I, I believe that wholeheartedly. Right? I'll say that in front of my wife. I didn't know what I was doing. And I am 100% certain that when she said yes, she didn't know what she was saying yes to. And if she would have known, if, if anybody would have known what she was saying yes to at that point, you would never say yes. You would never say yes. So I believe you made a mistake when you asked her to marry you. I believe she made a mistake when she said yes. What I don't believe is God made a mistake when he put you together. I don't believe that. So whether you buy into it or not, this is happening. Because Christianity has a word for this. It's called providence. It's called providence, right? God controls the context whether you're up for it or not. I might think I'm over my head, but this is God's providence. He thought, for some reason, it would be a good idea for me to be here over my head. But it's his providence, right? And there's a temptation in us to call this chaos or randomness or bad luck or whatever, but this is really providence. Moreover, God has created you for good works and prepared you for the good works even if you disagree. When you disdain where you're at, and wish for a different context, you're saying something negative about God's providence, right? You're saying something negative about his wisdom. You're saying something negative about his ability. You're saying something negative about him and how he runs things, right? When we do this, we sin. Let me be more pointed with a graphic example. When I was in school, I remember thinking I would be getting better grades if I wasn't working several part-time jobs, and this was not a passing thought. I dwelt upon this idea. And I, I remember resenting the jobs that fed me and my family. Okay? I even remember resenting certain students that I was with sitting in class. Because I'm trying to keep a family going, and this guy's married to a woman who has a great job. He doesn't go to work. He wakes up in the morning, has all day to study and take a test. I had two kids. Four kids at the end of it, right? Sins cluster like grapes, and believe me when I say I was sinning at many different ways on many different levels at that point. And it wasn't just implied, it was conscientious. It was a conscientious thought that I could certainly design my life better than God had. And yet he controlled the context. And verse 10 ought to straighten out that kind of thinking. I was God's workmanship created for those good works, which he prepared for me beforehand. I should have walked through them in righteousness, faithfully, honorably, and I did not. And, and we cannot talk about having a better boss, a more loving spouse, smarter kids, uh, more money, without ultimately saying something about how God's running the world. Verse 10 is not about giving us an upgrade. God prepared these good works beforehand so that you and I, his workmanship created for these good works, would walk through them, not look for different ones. Right? Another temptation 
is that God has created us for good works, which he prepared, even if I don't see improvement. Right? Obviously, from that story, I don't see anything good that came out of it. If I could do all that over again, I would. Um, not only was I disappointed in my grades at times, I was more disappointed in other things that were happening at that time. However, there's nothing in this passage that said if I would have handled that more righteously, if I would have been more obedient, if I would have been more God-glorifying, that my grades would have gotten better. There's nothing in here that says that. God has prepared us. God has prepared the good work. But there's no guarantee that my context is going to get better just because I'm being righteous in my context. We're to walk in them anyway. Now, I say all that to warn you about some temptations in that area, but I also want to show how this passage is helpful and is a blessing. Now, I'm standing on solid scriptural ground when I tell you you need to find a way to apply Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 in your life. You must do that as a Christian. I will, I will quote, uh, I will reference 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 to say this stuff ought to be profitable for you. And it's your job to work at it till it becomes profitable. I'm on solid biblical ground saying that. I want to demonstrate what I mean, and this demonstration is not a command from Scripture. It's an example of how this passage has helped me. So you must apply the passage, but you don't have to do it the way I did it. Okay? I want to be clear about that. This passage has sanctified me and the way I think about my daily activities. I have two jobs. One is, Justin said, I've been in 19 years. The other, about 12 years. I've had several other jobs. And in each of these jobs, there have been aspects of these jobs I did not like at all. And that is true of today. Okay, not, not today with you, but today in general. Okay, I don't like some of the things that are in my job description. I have had and still can have mornings that I do not want to get out of bed and face what I know I have to face. That's the truth. Over the years, I've gotten into a practice of thinking through parts of verses 8 through 10 in bed in the morning so that I would not only get up out of bed, but that I would also see the aspects of that day, the people I had to talk to, the conversations I need to have, the situations God had prepared for me to handle, I needed to think about those things better. And this helped me. It helped convince me that God had particularly prepared me to be the guy that had to do the job. It convinced me that I should go do the job because it was out there waiting for me. And he had prepared it for me. And it was ready for me to handle. And I needed to walk through this in a way that it produced good works. And so the trick was figuring out how to do it righteously. That's the trick. But I had the energy, I had the perspective to actually get up and start doing some stuff, right? And I still do this. I do this maybe three or four times a week, right? Before I get up, I think about the people I know I'm going to see. I think about some conversations. I think about some tasks. I think about some research. I think about what my agenda is. And, and, and then I have to think about those things being under the truth that God has that for me. And under the truth that I should be ready for that because he's prepared me as a workman. And the question is, how are you going to faithfully do this, Pat? And, and then I think about the things I don't know. Because I am sure the phone is going to ring and something is going to happen that I never anticipated. It's going to suck the air right out of my lungs and ruin everything I thought I had planned for that day. It'll happen. And I can't prepare for that. But I have to believe that those things too have been prepared for me and I have been prepared to address those things. And, and I have to pray that I can righteously walk through things I have no idea what might be. This has helped me lose some of the dread, some of the envy, some of the procrastination. Those are areas in which I sin in this Right? And this, this passage has helped me. Moreover, it's enriched some of my experience. Now, this is not me, but it is an application of this passage. What if you believe that the problem you're dealing with, the person you're dealing with, the situation in front of you was exactly what God wanted to give you to give attention to? What if you thought that? Wouldn't that enrich 
those few minutes of your day to think that God's got me here to deal with this? I'm not good at that, but that's where I want to be. Well, I'm done. I'm done. But I want you to remember the flow of this writing. You cannot just start with verse 10 and start applying like I just talked about applying. You can't do that. Everything that was before verse 10 is what makes verse 10 true. Right? In fact, if you only have 10 minutes to meditate on this, don't do it the way I just showed you. I told you this is a bad sermon. Spend of those 10 minutes, spend eight of them thinking about chapter one and what Christ has done for you. What he has done to the Son and sucked you up into his glorification of the Son. Think about what God has done. And then spend two minutes thinking about verse 10, right? And, and there's no way to truly believe chapter 2, verse 10, without totally being convinced about everything Christ has done for you in, in chapter 1. There's no way, all right? And, and this is so critical of a point, I want you to hear it in three different ways. First of all, I want you to hear it theologically, okay? Our sanctification or Christian growth, our sanctification or Christian growth must be grounded in our justification. If Christ didn't do what he did, if the Holy Spirit didn't apply it to you, you're, you're lost by verse 10. Okay, that's theologically speaking. Now let's hear it practically. If you don't dwell on what Christ has already accomplished in chapter 1, then you're just a pessimist trying to be an optimist so he can get out of bed. Lastly, hear it how Paul says it. Carefully listen to the order of this. He, this is God, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, you are too good. <laughs> you have been good to us as you've been good to your Son. As you've magnified Christ, we have benefited. As you've glorified and enjoyed him, we have, we have enjoyed being a part of that. We, we have not earned our way into the celebration of Jesus but you have been gracious to us. And you've been gracious so that we will appreciate your son more. And so while we want to enjoy what you've given to us, we also want to enjoy your love for the son that makes it possible. And we want to glorify your son and our salvation as you have so designed it. So thank you for Jesus. And, and Christ, thank you for accomplishing all you've done. And Father, you were not finished with us, for you sent your spirit to help in our sanctification, to guide us, to shape us into who we ought to be, and even put in front of us the things we ought to do. Help us to see your hand at work in our mundane aspects. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. We're going to stand and we're going to sing.